Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Crimopedia. Actually, it's the last one of 2021. That means it's going to be a bit of a shorter episode because I'm technically off of work and supposed to be on a vacation right now, but I couldn't help but record this episode for you all because this case fascinates me, and it happened kind of close to home. Lately, I've been reflecting on how insane this last year has been, from starting a podcast to many academic and personal endeavors. It feels like my life has done a complete 180 since 2020 but I don't know anyone who can't say the same thing. So many things have changed for so many people. All in all, I'm glad to be here and glad to have stuck with this show as much as the work has been difficult sometimes. I don't know if you guys know this, but podcasting is kinda hard, especially when you're doing it all on your own. But seeing all of the listeners in all of the different countries you guys are in makes it so, so worth it. I also loved seeing everyone Spotify wrapped who had me in their top five podcasters. That was really cool and I appreciated it so much. So thanks to everyone who has listened to me in 2021 and special thanks to those who have also sent in case suggestions. I love being able to deliver the stories that you guys want to hear. I've started planning out my episode schedule for 2022, and I'm really looking forward to hearing some feedback on the cases that you guys suggested. Okay, with all of that out of the way, today I'm going to be telling you about an unsolved murder that occurred in 1991 in the Canadian province of Ontario. This attack was totally unsolicited. It was a random act of violence that has left many people puzzled for the last 30 years. At the end of it all, two people would lose their lives and one, despite surviving the attack, would die years later without answers or justice. This is Allison from the future interrupting this podcast to let you know that as I was editing, I noticed that I am a bit nasally. I think we all know what season it is. Thankfully, I have PCR tested negative for COVID, but honestly, you never know. I do live in Canada and we all know that case numbers are very high right now but I'm hopeful it's just a byproduct of either the weather here in Canada or maybe just me spending so much time indoors because, you know, everybody has COVID out there. But yeah, long story short, I am apologizing for the audio on this episode not being the absolute best, but I am hopeful that you guys will all enjoy it anyways. <laughs> okay, Allison from the future out. So I think it's a good time to jump right in. The city of Lindsay, Ontario is home to roughly 21,000 people and sits approximately halfway between the Canada-United States border in Windsor, Ontario and Canada's capital city, Ottawa. It's not a very big city and it's not known for very much. No offense to the citizens of Lindsay, but it is quaint and an appealing place for any elderly couple looking to settle down into their retirement. It seems like this is exactly what Gordon McAllister, 62, and his wife Jacqueline, 59, had in mind. As of June in 1991, the two had been married for 39 years, and what better place to enjoy some peace and quiet than in Lindsay, Ontario? 
Unfortunately, all of the information online in this case really centralizes around what happened to the McAllisters, so I couldn't find much information about their early lives or what their day-to-day -day activities were like in Lindsay. However, for the sake of setting the scene, imagine a sweet elderly couple enjoying a peaceful life in a small city and looking forward to doing things on their own schedule. In the summer of 1991, the McAllisters had purchased themselves a new motorhome, a fully mobile RV that they were excited to get some mileage out of across the beautiful province of Ontario and possibly even across Canada. I'm not sure if the couple were celebrating something or if they simply just had the free time and expendable finances, but in late June of 1991, the two embarked on a major road trip from their home with the destination of Winnipeg, Manitoba on their radar. If one were to drive this trip non-stop, it would take approximately 21 hours in total, depending on whether or not you drive down into the United States or not. But by all accounts, they were in no rush to get to Winnipeg, and they intended on staying in different places along the way in their new motorhome, just exploring the scenery. Gord and Jackie McAllister embarked on Highway 17, better known as the Trans-Canada Highway. And it's unclear how many pit stops they made along the way until they reached an area known as Blind River, but nonetheless, on June 28th in 1991, a picnic-like rest stop in Blind River was exactly where they ended up. At this point, the couple would have been driving for at least five to six hours, and they were looking for a place to park their RV for the night and rest up before hitting the highway again the next day. The Blind River area in Ontario is just north of Manitoulin Island and east of Sault Ste. Marie. But Sault Ste. Marie is really the nearest large-ish metropolitan area and by no means is exactly close to where they were at. The point here that I'm trying to make is that the Blind River area is kind of random. It's a small area kind of in the middle between two known cities in Ontario, and the McAllisters likely stopped there to get a good night's rest completely just out of convenience. The two very easily could have picked a different location, but Blind River just happened to be the one they were at that night. So after settling in and getting their bearings about them for the night, Gord and Jackie crawled into bed in their motorhome and anticipated an uneventful night while they waited for the sunrise to greet them in the morning. However, the night of June 28th in 1991 would be very far from uneventful, and in fact, it would actually be one that changed the McAllisters' lives forever. Just after midnight at approximately 12.55 a.m., the couple were awoken by a knock on the front door to their motorhome. Kind of strange, right? So Jackie answered the door, likely kind of weirded out because there's really no reason for someone to come knocking at anyone's door unannounced at that hour unless something is wrong. When the couple opened their door, a man was standing in front of them, claiming to be a police officer, and informed Gord and Jackie that they needed to move their motorhome. It seemed legit in their sleepy haze, but only a second later, after it seemed like Gord and Jackie were processing the unsuspecting ruse, once the man got one foot into the door, he said, I'm going to rob both of you, and then kill you. This man was armed with two weapons, a 22 caliber handgun and a 20 gauge shotgun. 
So he definitely meant business, but according to Gord McAllister, he was initially suspect of the man's intention to kill them. It seemed pretty extreme for a super random home invasion style robbery when they were more than willing to give up their valuable belongings so that they can spare their own safety. And so Jackie did exactly what this man was asking of her. She gathered all of her rings and jewelry before putting them into her handbag and giving it over to the armed man standing in their RV. But in the same second that she handed over her bag to him, the man shot Jackie and she died instantly. At this point, if there was any doubt in Gord's mind whether or not this guy was violent and probably going to try and kill them, there wasn't any more. Thankfully, he was able to act on his instincts and jump out of the RV while being shot at and he was able to escape any serious injuries while hiding under the motorhome. To really solidify the seriousness of this incident, when an unsuspecting pedestrian pulled into the same rest stop and began to step out of his vehicle, the man shot him through his windshield. This random guy's name was Brian Donald Major, and he was 29 years old when he found himself simply at the wrong place at the wrong time. This totally random guy had nothing to do with the robbery gone wrong that this man was trying to execute on the McAllisters. Apparently, before he realized the gravity of the situation, he was exiting his vehicle once he pulled into the rest stop, but then once he saw that this man had a gun in his hand, he tried to re-enter it and start the car to get away, only he was one second too late. Brian left behind a wife and a young son from this totally random, senseless act of violence. After the man had killed Jackie McAllister and Brian Major, he decided to flee the area. Thankfully, however, Gord McAllister was still alive and was able to seek help from emergency services. After reeling from the aftershock of what was imaginably the most horrific day of Gordon McAllister's life, now that his wife was taken from him, he was determined to help police in any way possible seek justice. It all began with a composite sketch, one that I will post on my Instagram and website at crimopediapod.ca. Gord was able to give a relatively solid description of the man who attacked them, and described him as approximately 30 years old with a height ranging anywhere from 5 foot 10 to 6 feet tall. Gordon McAllister would also describe to police that his attacker had a lean build with long, stringy blonde hair, looking somewhat disheveled. He helped police speculate on a motive, which was something that everyone was really struggling with. It seemed like this guy, although he was interested in valuables, it didn't really seem like what happened was just a robbery gone wrong, considering Jackie willingly handed over everything of value that she had. This guy just wanted to kill somebody. And everyone was in agreement over this, the police, Gordon McAllister, and the public, but there was still one glaring question that remained in regards to the motive. Why? There are some killers out there that are exceptionally terrifying to me, and they are the ones who kill just because they simply want to or have the opportunity to. Oftentimes, police can deduce a killer's motive from the evidence at the crime scene, whether it was robbery or sexually motivated, but this one just seemed so random. Gordon said himself that this guy definitely wasn't in it for robbery, he just wanted to kill somebody. But these kinds of people are not only the most terrifying, they're also the most difficult for police to catch because there are no clues as to why somebody might do this. 
Other times when police are able to pinpoint a motive, such as, let's say, a sexually motivated murder, they will sometimes come out into the public and tell individuals to look out for people in their lives who have recently undergone major life changes, or had significant stressor events happen, or maybe just started all around acting super different. But with this one, there was no information. There was no way to tell whether or not this guy had done something like this before, or maybe he was acting erratically. There were no clues for police to be able to turn around and say, hey, public, media, everybody listening, look out for someone who's acting like this. And this hindered the investigation greatly, but we'll get to that soon. Once the investigation did kick off, a witness would come forward who was in the Blind River area that night and saw a blue Chevrolet van driving erratically eastbound towards Sudbury, Ontario. The witness said that the person driving this van seemed very frantic and almost even crashed into the witness's vehicle, but the witness was unable to get a license plate or any other solid descriptors. And let's not forget that this happened in the middle of the night, almost at one in the morning. So even with sporadic lights on the highway, it can get pretty dark out there. So it really doesn't surprise me that this witness wasn't able to pick up any specific details other than the fact that the van was blue and it was a Chevrolet. Regardless though, police were very interested in this blue van and thought that whoever owned it could at the very least know something more about the double homicide that took place on the evening of June 28th in Blind River. Unfortunately though, this lead would prove to be fruitless. Over 3,500 blue vans in the area were investigated surrounding Blind River and Sudbury including some on the other side of the Canada-United States border near Sault Ste. Marie into Michigan. But after no investigative leads really took off, as this is often what happens in cases where the violence is so random and there are no clues leading up to victims being targeted in advance or any sort of motive, the case unfortunately went cold, and it would remain that way to this day. In 1999, a potential suspect was identified, and this individual seemed like a promising candidate for being the one behind Jackie McAllister and Brian Major's murder. This man's name is Ronald West, and he is currently incarcerated for a string of other murders and robberies. Ronald West was a former police officer with Toronto's 53 Division, which covers the entire area inside the bounds of Bloor Street, up Spadina, across Lawrence Avenue East, and down the Don River. Ronald left only after a few years. He started up with the police service in 1966, but he left in 1972 to quote-unquote pursue alternative career paths, but he essentially fell off the grid after he resigned. He resurfaced in 1988, living in the Blind River area, only approximately 12 miles or 19 and a half kilometers from the crime scene where the McAllisters were attacked. Instead of continuing a career in law enforcement, however, or really just trying literally anything else other than what he ended up doing, West became a career criminal. He was a big fan of robberies, which continuously escalated in violence until he was eventually apprehended. In 1995 in Sault Ste. Marie, Ronald had an interaction with a man named Brian Langan, as Brian had advertised that he had a hospital bed for sale in his home. Ronald went over to Brian's house to take a look at the hospital bed, which was presumably a ruse, because after telling Brian that he was going to go consult his wife about potentially purchasing it, Ronald left and returned the next day. 
When Ronald arrived once again and entered Brian's home, he used the element of surprise to knock Brian unconscious by bludgeoning him in the back of the head. When Brian would regain consciousness sometime later, he found himself bound and gagged with a large bump on the back of his head from the blow. He was covered with an apron as well, which made it all the more difficult for him to get himself out of the restraints. Once he did finally get himself free, he discovered that he had been robbed of his wallet, his keys, and an additional $400 in cash. Five days later, on May 31st in 1995, Ronald was on a tour of a rental apartment in Sudbury, Ontario, when he suddenly struck the apartment owner, Camilo Rovinelli, on the back of the head with a steel wrench. Camilo initially tried to fight off Ronald West, but with repeated blows, he became too weak. Camilo allegedly began begging for his life to Ronald, who just coldly replied to him, you won't die, you're a tough guy. After Camilo was rendered unconscious, Ronald tied his hands and feet and left him in a closet so that he was free to rob the place. When Camilo finally woke up, he found it difficult to get himself free from the hands and feet ties, but he was finally able to get himself free after knocking over some coat hangers in the closet he was left in and using one to break a light bulb. With the pieces of broken glass, he was able to cut his restraints and get the heck out of there. And it was only a week later in June, same year, 1995, when Ronald West was ready to strike again. He would enter a Valentino Furs store in Sault Ste. Marie and without hesitation, pull a gun on a female clerk who was working. He managed to walk out of the store with quite a few valuables and police were shocked because this robbery happened in the middle of the day and the Valentino store was only walking distance away from the city courthouse in Sault Ste. Marie. It was clear that this man was brazen and very unafraid of police and this likely indicated to them that he had absolutely done this before, but it's unclear if up until now, they had connected the other robberies happening literally earlier that week with this one. Two days later, on June 16th in 1995, Ronald would arrive at the home of a man who was proficient in masonry, and he used the ruse that he was interested in commissioning something to be made. The person who Ronald was looking for wasn't home, but that was no problem because he didn't actually care about his masonry, he just wanted to rob the place. And he ended up managing to coerce the wife of this person to let him inside the home because the quote-unquote mosquitoes were bad. Once Ronald West was inside, he pulled a gun on her and then tied her up and gagged her with a t-shirt before pulling several sweaters over her face and robbing the house. Funny enough, after all of this work, Ronald only left with $15 in cash and two cans of soda. But Ronald's spree of violent robberies came to an end only four days after this incident on June 20th in 1995, when he went into a pawn shop and tried to pawn one of the rings he stole from the Valentino store. Ronald would use his own driver's license to identify himself to the pawn shop because, you know, typically they ask for some sort of ID, which proved to be the mistake that unwound him. However, Ronald West was pretty elusive and the investigation into these crimes proved to be a bit difficult because when they searched his house, they didn't find any of the items that he had stolen. However, when the next tenant moved in, they found stolen jewelry, photos of naked women, and an old registration for a 22 caliber handgun, all hidden in the bathroom. 
I'm not sure where these items were hidden exactly, like in some sort of hidden cupboard or under tile, but the fact that a tenant was able to find these items after police allegedly did a thorough search of the house, I think that says something. Either way, thankfully, he was prosecuted for these crimes. While serving an eight-year sentence at the now-closed Maximum Security Kingston Penitentiary in Kingston, Ontario, Ronald West was put back under the microscope when Ontario Provincial Police Detective Don McNeil reopened the cases of two unsolved murders that happened in 1970. Doreen Morby, a nurse living in northern Toronto with her 21-month-year-old son, was sexually assaulted before being shot and killed in her own home early that year. Only 13 days later, another nurse, Helen Ferguson, was shot twice in the back in her home with the same weapon on a day where she was home taking care of her young son who had stayed home from school to recover from the mumps. Her son, Dale, who was nine years old at the time, recalled hearing a knock at the door and then a loud bang before watching a strange man wipe off fingerprints from the front door handle and flee the scene. In front of nine-year-old Dale lay his bloodied mother, who would die shortly after. Despite no leads in the case initially, police in the 70s had thankfully done a careful job preserving semen samples that were collected on the bodies of these two victims, which was done in an effort to analyze them in the future. Back in the 70s, DNA technology was essentially non-existent as far as forensic examination goes, but police knew that the technology would be available someday, and thank God for this forward thinking because they were correct. So, in 1999, DNA analysis linked Ronald West to these two murders, which he was subsequently sentenced on two counts of non-capital murder, since Canada no longer carries the death penalty, and each of these charges carried an indeterminate prison sentence. For someone like Ronald West, indeterminate essentially means you're in prison for life. On top of the murder charges, he was also prosecuted for armed robbery and an onslaught of other things he did while these murders were underway. Essentially, the deal was sealed in getting Ronald West off of the streets. However, again in 1999, nobody could forget about Brian Major or Jackie and Gordon McAllister. The murders committed by Ronald West were eerily similar to that of the attack on the McAllisters. Home invasion with a ruse, robbery, and then a totally random shooting. Despite him not tying up the McAllisters or engaging in sexual assault, which was his usual MO, there was a lot more circumstantial evidence that pointed to Ronald West as potentially being their attacker. On top of the very similar home invasion robbery turned murder scenario, recall that Ronald only lived approximately 19 and a half kilometers from the area where the McAllisters were attacked in Blind River. As well, like I've mentioned, Ronald also owned a 22 caliber handgun, which was the same weapon used to kill Jackie McAllister and Brian Major. He also was the owner of a blue van at the time of the murders, which was similar to the one seen by the witness, erratically driving away from the area where the attack took place and almost crashing. Ronald also looks very similar to the composite sketch that was made, even more so to the updated one that Gordon McAllister would make with police years later after the attack happened. This time, it was digital. The only problem is that Ronald didn't have long, stringy blonde hair, but many people who knew him said that if he put on a cheap blonde wig, they definitely see the resemblance. 
Another piece of circumstantial evidence has to do with the ruse that the man who attacked the McAllisters used when he approached the motorhome. If you recall, the man identified himself as a police officer as a ruse to gain entry into the motorhome so he could attack them. If you recall, Ronald was a police officer in Toronto from 1966 to 1972. One key thing about people who fabricate lies, whether it be in situations like this where they're using it as a ruse or an alias, or whether it be in interrogation settings, is that there are often sprinkles of truth in their lies. If a suspect says his name is John Smith, it might actually be Jake Swan. This can make it easier for a liar to recall details in their lies. Sometimes lies can get really hard to follow, especially if they are large and complex or sometimes they are accidental as a criminal is trying to come up with something on the fly, and may be a little window into a suspect's real identity or motive. However, despite all of these pieces of circumstantial evidence, whether you think they're convincing or not, none of it is enough to bring in front of a judge in a courtroom. Whether or not you think Ronald West is a good fit to be the murderer of Jackie McAllister and Brian Major, until there is physical evidence, there is unfortunately nothing anyone can do. Thankfully, regardless of whether or not he's found guilty of these murders, he is off the streets for life, but that doesn't do anything to bring justice for the rest of the McAllister or Major families. Unfortunately, Gordon McAllister would pass away on Valentine's Day of 2012 at 82 years old, growing into his old age without his beloved wife Jackie and without ever seeing justice for her. I think that's what makes this case so tough for me. I can't imagine losing my life partner and then not being able to definitively say that I know what happened. Like so many cases that I cover, the story goes unsolved. Sometimes forever, sometimes for decades, and I just cannot imagine how it must feel to be a family member of a close loved one who disappeared or was murdered and just be kept in limbo for so long. Thankfully, however, according to Ontario Provincial Police Staff Sergeant Carol Dion, this case remains active despite being cold for 22 and a half years. Sergeant Dion also made it a point in an interview to note that people can verify whether or not someone who is approaching them as a police officer is actually a part of law enforcement or if they are impersonating an officer. I think what Staff Sergeant Dion said is a really good way to relay today's message to you all. Check for badge numbers. Check if the car they arrived in is marked. If you're being pulled over while driving and you're unsure, you can call the police and verify that an officer is actually in pursuit of you. If the operator has no notes about an officer in pursuit of your vehicle, then it's probably not a good idea to let the person driving after you actually get to you. There are ways to protect yourself from people like Ronald West. Although it doesn't seem like there was anything that Jackie and Gordon McAllister and Brian Major could even do, and although Ronald West's violence seemed erratic and his victims were unpredictable, it is important to stay vigilant because unfortunately, people like this do exist. There are two active rewards for information in the case of Jackie McAllister and Brian Major. There is a $50,000 reward out for information leading to a correct suspect and a $2,000 reward put out by Crime Stoppers for information of any value to the investigation. You can call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477 if you have any information on what happened to Brian Major and the McAllisters. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of Crimopedia. I know this was a short one, but again, I'm technically off work right now, so I'm really sorry about that, and I really wanted to get this case out to you guys. I have lots of amazing things planned for 2022, so be sure to follow my Instagram at crimopediapod and check out my website for a case suggestion form if you want me to cover anything you're interested in. Today was also the last day of my 12 days of true crime on my Instagram. If you're interested in learning any more about the cases I've talked about, let me know. I would be so glad to do a full episode on any of them. Be safe, everybody. I hope you all had a great holiday and are looking forward to 2022. Personally, I am cautiously optimistic. I will see you all here for the next episode on January 15th of 2022.